0: Chapter Fourteen, at the Sign of the Jack Lantern by Myrtle Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, Missus Dodd's Fifth Fate. Morning lay fair upon the land, and yet the Lady Elaine was weary. Like a drooping lily, she swayed in her saddle, sick at heart and cast down. Earnestly, her company of gallant knights strove to cheer her but in vain. Even the merry quips of the fool in Motley, who still rode at her side, brought no smile to her beautiful face. Presently he became silent, his heart deeply troubled because of her. An hour passed so, and no word was spoken. Then, timidly enough, he ventured another jest. The Lady Elaine turned. "'Say no more, fool,' she commanded." But get out of thy writing-tablet and compose me a poem. I would fain hear something sad and tender in place of this endless folly. Les Jongleur bowed. And the subject, princess? Elaine laughed bitterly. Myself, she cried. Why not? Myself, Elaine, and this foolish quest of mine? Then, for a space, there was silence upon the road since the fool with his writing-tablet had dropped back to the rear of the company, and the gallant knights, perceiving the mood of their mistress, spoke not. At noon, when the white sun trembled at the zenith, Le Jong-Lure urged his donkey forward, and presented to Elaine a glorious rose which he had found blooming at the wayside. "'The poem is finished, Your Highness,' he breathed, doffing his cap but tis all unworthy so i bring thee this rose also that something in my offering may of a certainty be sweet he would have put the scroll into her hand but she swerved her palfrey aside read it she said impatiently i have no mind to try my wits with thy poor scrolls so with his voice trembling And overwhelmed with self-consciousness the fool read as follows the vineyards purple with their bloom elaine hast thou forgotten the maidens in thy lonely room thy tapestry on silent loom but hush where is elaine elaine hast thou forgotten thy castle in the valley lies elaine hast thou forgotten where swift the homing swallow flies and in the sunset daylight dies but hush where is elaine elaine hast thou forgotten night comes at last on dreamy wings elaine hast thou forgotten mid gleaming clouds the pale moon swings thy taper light a faint star brings but hush where is elaine Elaine, hast thou forgotten? Harlan had never written any poetry before, but it had always seemed easy. Now, as he read the verses over again, he was tremendously satisfied with his achievement. Unconsciously, he had modeled it upon an exquisite little bit by someone else, which had once been reprinted beneath a story of his own, when he was on the paper. He read it aloud to see how it sounded, and was more pleased than ever with the swing of the verse and the music of the words. It's pretty close to art, he said to himself, if it isn't the real thing. Just then the luncheon bell rang, and he went out to the midday gab-fest, as he inwardly characterized it. The meal proceeded to dessert— Without any unusual disturbance, then the diminutive Ebenezer threw the remnants of his cup of milk into his mother's face and was carried off howling to be spanked. Like many other mothers, Mrs. Holmes resented her children's conduct when it incommoded her, but not otherwise, and though milk baths are said to be fine for the complexion, she was not altogether pleased with the manner of application. Amid the vocal pyrotechnics from the Holmes' apartments, Harlan escaped into the library, but his poem was gone. He searched for it vainly, then sat down to write it over before he should forget it. This done, he went on with Elaine and her adventures, and presently forgot all about the lost page. Don't that do your heart good? inquired Mrs. Dodd of Dorothy, inclining her head towards Mrs. Holmes' door. Be it ever so humble, sang Dick, strolling out of the room. There's no place like Holmes's. Mrs. Carr admitted that her ears were not yet so calloused, but that the sound gave her distinct pleasure. If that there little lamb of Satan had thrown his milk in everybody's face, went on Mrs. Dodd, All she'd have said would have been, Abby, don't spill your nice milk, that's naughty. Her imitation of the fond mother's tone and manner was so wickedly exact that Dorothy laughed heartily. The others had fled to a more quiet spot except Willie and Rebecca, who were fighting for a place at the keyhole of their mother's door. Finally, Willie gained possession of the keyhole, and the ingenious Rebecca lying flat on her small stomach peered under the door, and obtained a pleasing view of what was going on inside. "'Listen at that!' cried Mrs. Dodd, her countenance fairly beaming with innocent pleasure. "'I'm getting most as much good out of it as I would from going to the circus. Reckon it's a slipper, for it sounds just like little Jimmy Young's weepin' did the night I come home from my fifth honeymoon.' "'That's the only time,' she went on reminiscently, "'as I was ever a stepmaw to children that wasn't growed up. "'You'd think a woman as had been married four times afore "'would have knowed better than to get her full head into a noose like that. "'But there seems to be only one way for folks to learn things, "'and that's by their own experience. "'If we could only use other folks's experience, "'this here world would be heaven in about three generations.' but we're so constituted that we'll never believe fire'll burn till we poke our own fingers into it to see. Other folks' scars don't go no ways at all toward convincing us. You read lots of novels about the sores of stepchildren, but I ain't never come up with no epic as yet portraying the suffering of a stepmom. If I had a talent like your husband's got, I'll be blessed if I wouldn't do it. "'What I went through with them children aged me ten years and less than three. "'It was like this,' she prattled on. "'I'd never seen a one of them. "'They livin' far away from their pa, "'as was necessary if their pa was to get any peace and happiness out in life, "'and that lying creetur I married told me there was only three. "'My dear, there was eight, "'and sixteen ordinary young ones couldn't have been no worse.' Our courtin' was done mainly in the cemetery. i just laid my fourth away in his proper place, and had the letterin' all cut nice on his side of the monument, and I was doing the plantin' on the grave when I met my fate. My fifth fate. I'm speakin' a now. I allers aimed to do right by my husband's, when they was dead, no less'n when they was livin'. And I allers planted each one's favorite flower on his last restin' place, and planted it thick so as when the last trump sounded and they all riz up, there wouldn't be no one of them that could accuse me of being partial. Some of the flowers was funny for a graveyard. One of them loved sunflowers, and when Blossom time came, you could see a spot of light in my lot clear from the gate when you went in, and on sunny days even from quite a piece outside. Geraniums was on the next grave, red and pink together, as William loved to see em and most fittin' and appropriate. He was a queer-looking man. William was, all bald except for a little fringe of red hair around his head, and his bald spot gettin' as pink as anything when he got mad. I never could abide red and pink together, so I did my best not to rile him. But, la sakes, my dear red-haired folks, is that touchy that you never can tell what's going to rile him and what ain't. Some innocent little remark is as likely to set off as anything else. All the time it's like carrying a light into a fireworks place. Drop it once and the air will be full of skyrockets, roman candles, pinwheels, and set pieces till you're that dazed you don't know where you're livin'. Don't never take no red-haired one, my dear, if you're any way set on peace. I never took but one. But that was enough to set me dead against the breed. Well, as I was saying, James begun to woo me in the cemetery. Whenever you see a man in a cemetery, my dear, you can take it for granted that he's a new-made widower. After the first week or two, he ain't got no time to go to no grave. He's so busy looking out for the next one. When I see James a-watering and a-weeding on the next lot to mind, therefore, I knowed his sorrow was new, even though the band of crape on his hat was rusty and old being fellow mourners in a way we struck up kind of a melancholy friendship and finally got to borin water from each other's sprinkling cans and exchangin' flower seeds and slips and even whole plants that old deceiver told me it was his first wife that was a lion there and showed me her name on the monument she was buried in her own folks lot and i never knowed till it was too late that his own lot was plumb full of wives "'and this here was an annex, so to speak. "'I don't know how I come to be so took in. "'But anyways, when James grief had subsided somewhat, "'we decided to travel on. "'The remaining stretch through this vale of tears together. "'He told me he had a beautiful home in Taylorville, "'but wasn't living where he was so's to be near the cemetery "'and where he could look after dear Annie's grave.' the sentiment made me think all the more of him. So's I didn't hesitate, and was even willing to be married with one of my old rings to save the expense of a new one. James Allers was thrifty, and the way he put it, it sounded quite reasonable. So's that's how it comes, my dear, that in spite of havin' had seven husbands, I've only got six wedding rings. I put each one on when its own proper anniversary comes around and wear it till the next one when I change again. Though, for one of the rings, it makes only one day because the fourth and seventh I was married so near together. That sounds queer, my dear. But if you think it over, you'll see what I mean. It's fortunate, too, in a way, because I found out by accident years afterward that my fourth wedding ring come out of a pawn shop and I never took much joy out of wearing it. Being just alike, I wore another one mostly, even when Samuel was alive, but he never noticed. Besides, I reckoned it wouldn't make no difference. For a man that'll go to a pawn shop for a wedding ring ain't one to make a row about his wife's changing it. When I spoke sharp to him about it, he snickered and said it was appropriate enough, though to this day I've never figured out precisely what the old serpent meant by it. Well, as I was saying, my dear, the minister married us in good and proper form, and I must say that, though I've had all kinds of ceremonies, i take to the Episcopal one the most, in spite of having been brought up Methodist, and hereafter I'll be married by it if the occasion should arise, and we drove over to Taylorville. The roads was dreadful, but being experienced in marriage, I could see that it wasn't "'that that was making James drop the whip and pull back on the lines "'when he wanted the horses to go faster "'and not hear things I was saying to him. "'Finally, I says, very distinct, James, dear, "'how many children did you say you had?' Eight, says he, clearing his throat proud and haughty-like. "'You're lying,' says I, "'and you know you're lying.' You always told me you had three. I was speaking of those by my first wife, says he. My other wives all left one apiece. Ain't I never told you about them? I thought I had. He went on, speaking quick. But if I haven't, it's because your beauty has made me forget all the pain and sorrow of the past. With that he clicked to the horses so sudden that I was near through out of the rig. "'but it wasn't half so bad as the other jolt he just give me. "'For a long time I didn't say nothing, "'and there's nothing that makes a man so uneasy "'as a woman that don't say nothing, my dear. "'So you just write that down in your little book "'and remember it. "'It'll come in handy long before you're through "'with your first marriage and have begun on your second. "'Having been through four, I was well skilled "'in keeping my mouth shut.' "'and I never said a word till we drove into the yard "'of the most disconsolate-looking premises I ever seen "'since I was took to the poor-house on a visit.' "'James,' says I, cool but firm, "'is this your magnificent residence?' "'It is,' says he, very soft. "'And it is here that I welcome my bride. "'Have you ever seen anything like this view?' "'No.' "'says I. "'I never have. "'And it was gospel truth I was speaking to, "'for never before had I been to a place "'where the pigsty was in front. "'It is a wonderful view,' says I, sarcastic-like, "'but before I linger to admire it more, "'I would love to look upon the scenery inside the house. "'When we went in, I thought I was either dreaming "'or had got to bedlam.' THE SEVEN YOUNGEST CHILDREN WAS RAISING PARTICULAR CANE, AND THE OLDEST, A PRETTY LITTLE GIRL OF THIRTEEN, WAS DOING HER BEST TO QUIET em. THERE WAS SIX OTHERS BESIDE WHAT HAD BEEN ACCOUNTED FOR, BUT I SOON FOUND THAT THEY BELONGED TO A NEIGHBOR AND WAS JUST visitin' TO RELIEVE THE MONOTONY. THE WOMAN JAMES HAD LEFT taken CARE OF em, HAD BEEN GONE TWO WEEKS AND MORE, WITH A MONTH'S WAGES STILL COMING TO HER which James never felt called on to pay, on account of her having left without notice. James was dreadful, thrifty. The young one was putting the cat into the water pitcher, and as soon as I found out what his name was, I called him sharp by it and told him to quit. He put his tongue out at me as sassy as you please and says, "'I, well—' "'Well, my dear—' "'I didn't wait to hear no more, but I opened my satchel and took out one of my slippers "'and give that child a lickin' that he'll remember when he's a grandparent.' "'Hereafter,' says I. "'When I tell you to do anything, you'll do it. "'I'll speak kind the first time and firm the second, "'and the third time the whole thing will be illustrated so plain that nobody can misunderstand it.' "'Your pa has took me into a confidence game,' says I, speaking to all the children.' but I was never one to draw back from what I'd put my hand to. And I ain't to do right by you, if you do right by me. You mind, says I, and you won't have no trouble. And the same thing, says I to James, applies to you. I felt sorry for all those poor little motherless things with a liar for a paw, and all the time I lived there I tried to make up to em what I could, but... Stepmas have their sores my dear that's what they do and i ain't never seen no piece about it in the paper yet either if you'll excuse me now my dear i'll go to my room it's just come to my mind now that this year is one of my anniversaries and i'll have to look up the facts in my family bible and change my ring at dinner-time the chastised and chastened twin appeared in freshly starched raiment his eyes were swollen and his face flushed but otherwise his recent painful experience had remarkably improved him he said please and thank you and did not even resent it when willie slyly dropped a small piece of watermelon down his neck this afternoon said elaine mr perkins composed a beautiful poem i know it is beautiful though i have not yet heard it i do not wish to be selfish in my pleasure "'so I will ask him to read it to us all.' "'The poet's face suddenly became the colour of his hair. "'He dropped his napkin and swiftly whispered to Elaine, "'while he was picking it up, "'that she herself was the subject of the poem. "'How perfectly charming,' said Elaine clearly. "'Did you hear, Mrs. Carr? "'Poor little insignificant me "'has actually inspired a great poem. "'Oh, do read it, Mr. Perkins.' "'We are all dying to hear it!' Fairly cornered, the poet muttered that he had lost it. "'Some other time. Wait until to-morrow, and so on.' "'No need to wait,' said Dick, with an ironical smile. "'It was lost, but now it is found. "'I came upon it myself, blowing around unheeded under the library window. "'Quite like a common bit of paper.' Mr. Perkins was transfixed with amazement, for his cherished poem was at that minute in his breast pocket. He clutched at it spasmodically to be sure it was still safe. Very different emotions possessed Harlan, who choked on his food. He instinctively guessed the worst, and saw his home in lurid ruin about him, but was powerless to avert the catastrophe. "'Read it, Dick,' said Mrs. Dodd kindly. "'We are all a-perishin' to hear it. I can't eat another bite until I do.' I reckon it'll sound like a valentine, she concluded with a malicious glance at Mr. Perkins. I have taken the liberty, chuckled Dick, of changing a word or two occasionally to make better sense of it, and of leaving out some lines altogether. Everyone is privileged to vary an established form. Without further preliminary, he read the improved version. The little doggie sheds his coat. Elaine, have you forgotten? What is it? goes around a button. I thought you knew that simple thing. But ideas in your head take wing. Elaine, have you forgotten? The answer is a goat. How much is three times Humpty Steen? Elaine, have you forgotten? Why does a chicken cross the road? Who carries home a toper's load? You are so very stupid, dear. Elaine, have you forgotten? You think a mop of scarlet hair and pale green eyes. That will do, said Miss St. Clair crisply. Mr. Perkins, may I ask as a favor that you will not speak to me again? She marched out with her head high, and Mr. Perkins, wholly unstrung, buried his face in his napkin. Harlan laughed, a loud ringing laugh, such as Dorothy had not heard from him for months. And, striding around the table, he grasped, Dick's hand in tremendous relief. Let me have it, he cried eagerly. Give me all of it. Sure, said Dick readily, passing over both sheets of paper. Harlan went into the library with the composition, and presently, when Dick was walking around the house and saw bits of torn paper fluttering out of the open window, a light broke through his usual density. Whew! he said to himself. I'll be darned. I'll be everlastingly darned. Idiot, he continued savagely. Oh, if I could only kick myself. Poor Dorothy. I wonder if she knows. End of chapter 14